Hello and welcome to the final episode of our second series of Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London, presented by Jamie Ruiz and me, Tom DeRose, and produced by Carolina Heller. Well, over the last three episodes, we've taken a deep dive into Freud's extremely influential 1919 paper, The Uncanny, and today we're going to be discussing the impact of the text, as well as the wider context of Freud's ideas on art more generally. Now, as we noted in part one, Freud defines aesthetics as the theory of the qualities of feeling. So the uncanny, according to Freud, is a subjective response rather than something that exists, as it were, in an object, like a painting or a novel or whatever it might be. However, his two main sources of data are firstly his own personal experiences and secondly, literature, really, in the broadest sense. In fact, the vast majority of the paper is devoted to discussions of novellas, fairy stories and the like. Now, very close to the end of part three of the text, Freud writes the following. In the main, we adopt an unvarying passive attitude towards real experience and are subject to the influence of our physical environment. But the storyteller has a peculiarly directive power over us. By means of the moods he can put us into, he's able to guide the current of our emotions, to dam it up in one direction and to make it flow in another. And he often obtains a great variety of effects from the same material. Jamie, if you were to think of a particular piece of creative writing that you personally feel to be kind of productive of this uncanny effect, in which a writer exercises a peculiarly directive power over you, what would it be? Now, of course, there are so many titles I could actually mention at this point. One of my favourites, actually, is, uh, is Coraline by Neil Gaiman, which is a children's book. But it is so haunting. It's about a young girl that moves house. And in this new house, she finds a parallel world where the house is actually replicated. And her parents are also replicated in this, in this other world. But there's one big difference. They have buttons for eyes. And I'll probably talk about eyes again a bit later. But slowly throughout the book, their kindness uh, in this other world sours and her other mother turns into a, a very big spider. So despite being you know, a young adult's book, we see glimpses of doubles, of references to the removal of eyes, and um, in ways, references to the uncanny. But another favorite example of mine is uh, The Double by Dostoevsky. Now, the story follows the life of Yakov Goliadkin, who, one dark night, in the distance, sees a familiar figure. And he chases the figure along the canal, down some streets, and into a building. And then, suddenly, he catches up with the figure. Then, in this very Dostoevsky-esque way, the author beautifully describes the emotions that the protagonist feels. And he says, 
His breath failed him. His head was a whirl. The stranger, also in his coat and hat, was sitting before him in a friendly way. Mr. Glyadkin wanted to scream but could not, to protest in some way, but his strength failed him. His hair stood on end, and he almost fell down with horror. And indeed, there was good reason. He recognized his nocturnal visitor. The nocturnal visitor was none other than himself. Mr. Glyadkin himself, another Mr. Glyadkin. But absolutely the same as himself. In fact, what is called a double in every respect. I really wanted to read this because the description of Goyadkin's horror is to me as though he has just encountered a very infantile fear, much like you know, Freud's description of castration anxiety, and I think Dostoevsky's description of the fear is so akin to Freud's description of the uncanny, this quality of feeling that's rooted in aesthetics. It has to do with dread, horror, and repulsion. But anyway, Goyadkin bonds with his double in this novella, and he, he finds himself becoming envious and starts to have paranoid nightmares where the double starts to replace him in his life. But the story, and I'm sorry for the spoiler here, ends on Goyadkin going back to a house where the story began, and the double comes out to meet him and invites him into this house where a doctor is waiting for him, and the doctor takes him to a carriage, which carries him off to a mental asylum. I guess what makes it so uncanny is, you know, not only the similarities that Goliadkin shares with his double, um, but the threat that the doppelganger presents. And it reminds me a little like the, <laughs> it reminds me a little like the prophecy in the Harry Potter series. You know, neither can live while the other survives, and we see this theme time and time again. Um, my favorite modern horror film is Us by Jordan Peele, and um, in this film the double of oneself is this evil being who sets out to destroy their good counterpart. Um, but in Dostoevsky's case, the double is this better, younger version of himself, but you know, there's only room for one version of Goyadkin in the, in the end, so eventually it's, I guess it's a reminder of one's own mortality. That's really fascinating. Thanks. And, and kind of, you know, speaking about Dostoevsky, I mean, it, it reminds me that there's also a kind of long treatment of Dostoevsky's The Double in Otto Rank's book that we mentioned earlier. And, and yeah, it's quite interesting, really, to think that Freud actually doesn't use the example himself, because, as we know, like, he was a huge admirer of Dostoevsky. Um, you know, he even wrote that that Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov, was the most magnificent novel ever written. From my point of view, uh, Jamie, I think that there were probably two texts that really immediately spring to mind, you know, when I start to think about the uncanny. The first would be Henry James's Turn of the Screw. You know, it's, it's ostensibly a ghost story, but we never really know whether we're supposed to take the ghosts as real or just existing in the governess's head. And of course it involves the corruption, or not perhaps, of innocent children. It's, it's wonderfully interpreted by um, Benjamin Britten in his opera of the same name. You know, somehow the, the serene and the sinister 
are kind of repeatedly intermeshed in the, the acoustic canvas that he creates. And I, I guess the other text or the other group of text that I would focus on would be really anything to do, any anything written by uh, Robert Aikman. Um, you know, in his work, there's this pervading sense of unease, you know, Again, it's that sense of indeterminacy that, that creates this atmosphere of his work. As far as I'm concerned, he, he's really the master of creating that sense of, of continual delay that I think that Freud's getting at when he describes the kind of conjuring trick that writers pull off by keeping us in the dark over the nature of the reality that we should subscribe to. One thing that does seem surprising, perhaps, Jamie, is the fact that all of Freud's non-personal examples, as it were, are drawn from the field of literature. This, this kind of seems like a very kind of limited spectrum, really. I wonder, Jamie, if you could speak a little bit more about Freud's interests in the arts more generally. Sure. So, um, well, I guess Freud had quite conservative uh, tastes in art. Um, when you walk around Freud's house in um, in 20 Marysville Gardens, you see lithographs and prints from old masters like Leonardo and Rembrandt, as well as his interest in collecting antiquities of ancient civilizations. And I guess these tastes, they were quite common in the late 19th century. They were fashionable in the 19th century. And the Italian Renaissance period was considered you know, the height of art at this period. Um, so he was very conventional, I guess, in that sense. He had written, psycho he had written psychobiographical essays about Michelangelo and, Leo and Leonardo, and also Rembrandt's Moses, Breaking the Tablets of the Law, inspired his final essay um, on Moses and monotheistic religion. Um, so they do sort of... Um, have a have a bit of a, a connection to his work. And he didn't really engage uh, with artists from his own period. If you think about some of Freud's contemporaries in Vienna, they included you know, major names like Gustav Klimt, Oskar Kokoschka, and Egon Schiele, but they moved in really different circles. And while Freud was exploring the workings of our unconscious and our innermost desires and psychoanalysis, Klimt, Schiele, and Kokoschka were actually exploring these themes in their art. The American cultural historian um, Carl Schorska compares Klimt's development of his avant-garde painting style, which brings to the fore sexuality. He compares this to Freud's revolutionary theories of the mind, and Schorska suggests that Freud and Klimt at the same time were part of an Oedipal revolt against their predecessors in their fields. So it's almost a shame that they actually didn't exchange ideas with each other. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I always find it a, such an interesting kind of paradox, really. Um, you know, we see this Freud, don't we, in the, those old sepia photos, you know, austere, impeccably turned out, you know, the image of bourgeois respectability. And, of course, a man of very conservative tastes in many ways. That such a man could produce a body of work that was so revolutionary, you know, so modern, really. The Uncanny itself seems to me to be a very modern text. It's no coincidence, I think, that the new science of psychoanalysis really springs from the same historical roots as cinema. 
Lumiere brothers first exhibited moving images in 1895, the same year as the publication of the studies in Hysteria. Now, Otto Rank's book on the double, which Freud references in part two of The Uncanny, actually begins with a lengthy discussion of a film, the 1913 silent film, The Student of Prague. Cinema would seem to be a very appropriate medium, wouldn't it, for producing the uncanny effect? You'll remember Schelling's definition that Freud references of something that ought to have remained hidden, having come to light. We might think of the identical twins standing in the hotel corridor in that unforgettable scene in Kubrick's The Shining, or indeed the whole atmosphere of Charles Lawton's the Night of the Hunter. But cinema is nowhere to be found in Freud's text. I wonder, Jamie, was Freud really aware of his influence on the avant-garde, on the new media of his day? Ah, well, so the French surrealists were, you know, the first, I guess, of the avant-garde groups to directly take inspiration from Freud's explorations into the unconscious. The group's co-founder, André Breton, actually mentioned Freud three times in the first Surrealist Manifesto of 1924, and then again he was mentioned in the second Manifesto of 1929. They praised Freud's methodologies for you know, how he was developing psychoanalysis, uh, his methodologies for you know, ways to access the unconscious, uh, and mainly his analysis of dreams. And this inspired the development of the Surrealists' own creative processes as they aimed to make art and literature that demonstrated the workings of the unconscious, you know, un uncensored and uninhibited. And Breton, so Breton did try, he tried to correspond with Freud via letters, and he even met him at one point. But he was such an antagonistic character, and Freud just didn't, didn't understand the Surrealists. He, he even once proclaimed in a letter to Breton, saying, I do not understand what surrealism is or what it wants. I, who am so distant from art. Now, Freud wasn't distant from art. We heard that he'd written about Leonardo and Michelangelo and Rembrandt's Moses, but he was just resistant to this new, these new movements around art. And then the poster boy for surrealism was, of course, Salvador Dali, who officially joined the group in 1929 and saw Freud as his hero. He wanted to meet him so much that he went to Vienna a few times trying to meet him, but he could never quite pluck up the courage. And then in 1938, Dali contacted a common friend of theirs, Stefan Zweig, the, the Austrian author, to introduce him to Freud in London after he had moved here to after he had moved to london in exile and uh dali brought with him his painting the metamorphosis of narcissus an essay that he had written about a theory that he was developing called the paranoiac critical and some drawing implements and it seems like their meeting went well as as as, as freud actually wrote to stefan zweig the next day saying i was inclined to look upon the surrealists who have apparently chosen me as their patron saint, as absolute cranks. The young Spaniard, however, with his candid, fanatical eyes and his undeniable technical mastery, has made me reconsider my opinion. 
It would in fact be very interesting to investigate analytically how a picture like this came to be painted. From the critical point of view, it could still be maintained that the notion of art defies expansion as long as the quantitative proportion of unconscious material and pre-conscious treatment does not remain with, within definite limits. In any case, these are serious psychological problems. <laughs> um, so I would say, I mean, the, the painting he's talking about here is the Metamorphosis of Narcissus. And I'd actually say that that painting was probably quite tame compared to Dali's other works. Because rewinding just a little bit to the late 1920s, Dali, along with his colleague Luis Buñuel, dabbled in this new art form of film, and they made one of the most iconic surrealist films called Un Chien Andalou. And like a dream, this film just does not follow a narrative, but it seems to be just a kind of collage of scenes, of disappearing figures, ants crawling over hands, and probably one of the most famous cinematic scenes of a razor blade slicing a woman's eye. And this very short film, it's only 15 minutes, is often referenced in relation to the uncanny for the slicing of the eye, which I think makes even the strongest among us wince. Doesn't the cutting of the eye bear such similarity to the story of the Sandman? You know, as we talked about in the second episode of, of this series, the Sandman in E.T.A. Hoffman's tale would come and take the eyes of children who would not go to sleep. And Freud likens the snatching or the gouging of the eyes to this castration complex. You know, the removal of such a fundamental organ, like the eye, reignites this infantile fear of being castrated. Gosh, and it, and it also really kind of makes you think about Freud focusing on, you know, Dali's candid, fanatical eyes, doesn't it? And they're kind of, you know, so, <laughs> but that, you know, I, that, that wonderful kind of reference, the description of, of Un Chien Andalou really and the relation to Hoffman's Sandman, you know, leads us re really kind of nicely, doesn't it, back to Freud's text itself. You'll remember that Freud listed two distinct sources of the uncanny effect. Firstly, it, it is produced by the reoccurrence or the remembrance of a stage that should have been surmounted. And secondly, it proceeds from repressed infantile complexes, as you've just mentioned, Jamie. And I think that our discussion so far really has helped to cover both of these cases. One thing I'd like to bring in now, just as we're drawing to a close, is the recent exhibition we had on Freud's Uncanny, the Uncanny Centenary, which of course took place in 2019. Much of the material from the exhibition will soon be available to view as an online exhibition through our website, www freud.org.uk. I wonder, Jamie, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a taste of what we'll find in that online exhibition, just to whet our appetites. Well, the original exhibition uh, delved deep into the text and explored it through its historical context of war and post-traumatic stress disorder among soldiers returning from war. But as well as that, we also looked at the uncanny in literature, the visual arts, film, the feminine, and the uncanny in everyday life. 
So it's worth reading the material on the online exhibition about these subjects because you know not only are they incredibly interesting, but the panels themselves were you know written as well by leading figures in the field like Nicholas Royal and Forbes Morlock. And alongside the texts, we actually had uh, this wonderful group exhibition that brought this uh, sort of written information to life with artists including Elizabeth Durnley, Lily Spain, Martin Blood, Carolina Urbaniak, and Martha Todd. All of the artists' contributions explored the theme through different media. You know, Elizabeth Durnley made an immersive piece. She created a room inspired by Nathaniel's childhood bedroom in The Sandman. And then the room contained you know, mirrors with faces looking back at you, dolls and creepy sound effects. And she created this audio experience that went alongside it, which you can still download from App Store's today. Lily Spain created a, a sculpture of uh, a female mannequin's head coated in wax, which had a poem that went alongside it. And this piece really focused actually on the theme of the house and the home and the distortion of the familiar space. Martin Blood and Carolina's, uh, Carolina Urbaniak's short film was based upon the Sandman story. It featured two dolls which were gradually mutilated, mutilated throughout the film to a backdrop of children's nursery rhymes and a collage of drawings that appeared to be sort of child interpretations of the Sandman. It's really haunting. And then, and then finally, Martha Todd, who is a ceramicist, sculpted some amazing pieces including you know, ceramic gas masks and china dolls with their legs replaced with forks or chunks missing from their heads. And all of these works, what I really liked about all of these works is that they, you know, all evoked this unsettling feeling. They were all, they all sort of aimed to make you uncomfortable. Um, but I think also all the artists picked out certain elements of the text that really stood out for them. And that was a really different interpretation for every single person. So uh, during the original exhibition, we were also very fortunate to be kindly loaned some etchings by the German surrealist Hans Bellmer, whose works border upon sort of creepy, sadistic, and sexual all at once. Um, and the exhibition will soon be available to view and experience online for the very first time. And the catalogue from this fantastic show is available from the Freud Museum shop now, if you'd like to read more. Great, Jamie. Sounds wonderful. I look forward to that going online. And as you mentioned, you'll be able to access the online exhibition, The Uncanny Centenary, and much else besides on our website, www.freud.org.uk. Well, sadly, we've, we've come to our end now of our journey through the Freudian uncanny. Uh, I'd like to thank my co-host, Jamie Ruiz, and our producer, Carolina Heller. But most of all, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us over these last few weeks. We hope that you've all enjoyed it as much as we have. In two weeks' time, we'll have something of a treat for you. We'll be releasing, as a bonus episode to this second series of Freud in Focus, a lecture by psychotherapist and author Dr. Aaron Balick, who will be exploring the theme of the uncanny and technology. So be sure to listen out for that and indeed for the next series of Freud in Focus, which will be airing in the new year. Until then, take great care.